Welcome to Don't You Lie to Me. <laughs> okay, let's go. Don't you lie to me. I'm going to have another drink. Don't you lie to me. Explain that to the kids. Don't you lie to me. Okay, let's hear that story. Let's start interviewing. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Don't You Lie to Me. I'm your lovable host, Jeff Bell, and that guy over there is our producer, Warren Hicks. With this podcast, we're exploring the visual arts scene in North Carolina by bringing you interviews with artists and arts professionals throughout the state. If this is your first time listening, please check out our website, don'tyoulietome.com, for previous episodes, images of our guest work, links to their websites, art venues, and more. You can also follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at D-Y-L-T-M-N-C. Today we're talking with Brian Howe. He is the Managing Arts and Cultural Editor at the Indie Weekly. He's also uh, an artist himself, a poet. You can find out more at his website, which is waxroth.com. That's W-A-X-W-R-O-T-H.com. Enjoy. The following podcast contains adult language. Oh, I like that. X-rated, R-rated. Holy shit. Previously on Don't You Lie to Me. All right, let's do this. What the hell am I going to talk to this motherfucker about? I think he's listening. This is going to sound stupid. Did that sound stupid? Fuck you, mom. (laughs) I also remember, uh, what else do I remember? I don't remember. I'm sorry, what was the question? Fucking Southerners. I'm pulling this out of my rear end, and maybe not what you'd expect. Butterflies, airplanes, insects, some gorillas. Squirrel, Dalmatian puppy, 867 objects. Doing evil in the world. We wanted to have more objects. How much can a person do? Ooh. Mm -hmm. Oh. Mm. (laughs) Your hard thing will be pressed against her soft, squishy thing. Ooh. Ooh, my syphilis is crazy. Uh Uh-oh. That's what my grandma used to say a lot. Yuck. That's going to kill you. Drop dead. (laughs) (laughs) The Pope is the biggest sinner of all. Hey there, Brian. Hey, Jeff. (laughs) Thanks for joining us. Sorry I'm not wearing my headphones. That's all right. Um, Warren wears his, but it's of no use to him at all. So the first thing I wanted to say is I don't know much about your background. Where are you from? I was born in Chapel Hill, as a matter of fact. That can't be true. It is true. I was, sorry, mom and dad, I was conceived in married student housing at UNC. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, so I'm, I'm an old school Tar Heel. So they were a student? My dad was, yeah. Mm-hmm. He studied cool. chemistry. He's still, uh, they, they live in Hillsborough, which is where I grew up from, went from like uh, third grade to when I graduated high school. Mm. And my dad works as an environmental chemist out at Research Triangle Park. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. So I grew up with UNC basketball, you know, hardcore, right. dad throwing pillows at the TV. He's a very mild man, but that's the angriest you would ever get was watching UNC basketball mm. throw a throw pillow at the TV from time to time. I grew up an NC State fan, and he's very lucky that that wasn't his thing. <laughs> right. <laughs> that's a little bit harder road. Yeah, we had some good basketball days then when I was growing up in oh, the yeah. 80s and early 90s at UNC. And so you naturally, with a chemist for a dad, you became interested in the art <laughs> right yeah of course I, I was really into science when i was a little kid i used to, uh, paleontologist was one of my early careers that i thought i was going to be mm-hmm. uh you know i had a chemistry set that i loved i was really into uh, astronomy 
But yeah, then what happened? Puberty hit and all hell broke loose and I got into the arts instead right. of uh, anything lucrative. What was that first <laughs> thing? Music? What, uh, first thing in the arts? Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, music first, like most young people, I think. I, you know, I right. got a, I got a Strat copy and got the guitar magazine so I could play the Smashing Pumpkin songs with the tablature out of them. Right. Um, but yeah, definitely music first. Yeah, you know, I grew up in Hillsborough and I didn't have a lot of culture brought to me. You know, the theater, dance, opera. Right. These were all things I discovered on my own, you know, kind of, you know, I guess when I left home for college. Visual art was important to me, though, because actually drawing was my thing before I got into writing. Like, mm -hmm. um, uh, I actually went to college for a while for majoring in visual art. Drawing and pencil and pen and ink was kind of like my main thing. I had no idea what I thought I was going to do for a career. It's just what mm -hmm. I got praised for in high school, and it seemed like it would be like easy. So I went to college <laughs> for visual art. Uh, but in high school for a while, if you, you know, since this is an art show, I should tell you right. about my art background. The Friends of the Public Library had a contest every year where you would uh, draw like historic houses in Hillsborough, uh, draw or paint them. Mm -hmm. And um, I won that like two or three years in a row, which came with a little prize money and like right. a display in the public library. But then actually people started, like people my parents knew, uh, people you know we went to church with, whatever, started uh, hiring me to, to draw their, their houses that meant oh, something wow. to them. You've probably um, made more money at that time than I've made my whole life as an artist. <laughs> yeah, it's not. Yeah, making money off of art is not a thing. I remember I sold a poem once for like fifty dollars, and I thought that was pretty amazing because usually right. you just publish them for free somewhere, unless you, you know, unless it's a book or something. Sure. Um, but yeah, I made a little money doing that. You know, I, it didn't really take hold. I was kind of a wild child by then, so I didn't really um, focus on it as diligently as I as I might have. Mm -hmm. But yeah, visual art and music were kind of my first artistic loves, I would say. Where'd you go to school? East Carolina. And so you started out in visual arts. Then I dropped out. Uh huh. And then I just started writing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't, hopefully no future employers are listening because <laughs> nobody ever even asked me about this anymore now that I've been kind of working in this industry for 20 years in some fashion. Right. But uh, no, yeah, I dropped out of undergrad and came back to this area. I'd planned to go back. Mm -hmm. Um I did a little community college at Durham Tech and Alamance where I was kind of like reorienting myself and, you know, figuring out what I was going to do since I wasn't doing art school. But I started writing about the music scene here. This was in the very late 90s, right around 2000, mm -hmm. first for a zine called SUP, um, which incredibly is still in publication, but is comes out of London now because the founder has, has moved to London. But right. this is a long running, like old school Chapel Hill music scene. And uh, then I got work writing for The Spectator, which was the Independent Weekly's competitor back in the I day. It was that. a creative loafing paper that folded around the mid 2000s, which is when I moved over to the indie. So, yeah, I was, you know, working towards kind of transferring back to school. I was working at a movie theater as a projectionist and then at a coffee shop at OpenEye mm -hmm. um, and doing this freelance writing thing. And the writing thing kind of like took hold enough that I ended up just kind of um, flowing into that. And I kind of split my 20s between, um, you know, working like barista and movie jobs and getting my freelance hustle going. And then by the time I was 30, I was in a place where I could, you know, give up my uh, service industry jobs entirely and just freelance write, which I did for a few years till I started working at the indie full time. So when you started doing that, did you know you could write? When I started doing, when I started writing? Yeah. I thought I could write. Mm -hmm. I thought I could write. Yeah. Um, I mean, writing is, I, I, I've been a huge reader all my life. 
writing, even after I stopped trying at school, art and writing were the things I was still good at. Mm-hmm. So I'd, I'd always loved reading and writing. I mean, in my early years, you know, writing about music as like a 19, 20, 21 year old, I mean, you don't you don't know anything. You don't know anything about music yet. And it's like, right. it's like history um, and it's, uh, it's context. And you maybe don't really know what a review sounds like. But, you know, I got hired at Pitchfork mm-hmm. um, in the early 2000s, kind of in the end of its like real like Wild Westy days. Yeah. So it was an okay place to like learn to write about music on a big stage and embarrass yourself. Because nobody really, I mean, we were publishing these crazy concept reviews. It was really like the Wild West. Right. So I thought I could write. I had enough like chutzpah as a writer to compensate for whatever like lack of knowledge that I had. I, you right. know, I had a voice and I had a lot of energy and drive, a lot of uh, pretension. You know, I was always a precocious child until I got too old to be precocious, and then I became pretentious. <laughs> is, um, is that what happens? Yeah, that's what happens. And somehow I made it through all that, and then I, I kind of actually like learned to write. But that's a really hard, long process. Like you start right. young and you think you can write, and it's all like really ego based. And eventually you figure out, usually through some humiliating public experience or a multitude of them, that you don't know anything and that you can't write. And then you either drift out of the business or you start learning to write properly. Right. And I really love writing. And so I, I persevered and learned to write properly. And I mean, I think writing's like, it's like a mountain you climb and nobody gets to the peak. You don't even get that high up the slope, but you see how high you can get right. uh, before you give up or die. Um, <laughs> so I still have a lot higher to climb, but... Now I feel like I can write. Right. I, but I, I thought I could write when I was young and I couldn't write. Yeah. And then I went through a phase where I didn't think I could write, but I kept writing because it's what I did. Right. Now I, now I think I can write. When in there did you start writing for yourself, like poetry and that sort of thing? Yeah, same time. Let's see. I guess, yeah, I said it was my late teens, early 20s when I started writing music. I started off just writing music, journalism, reviews and interviews and stuff, and then pretty swiftly expanded to books and other art forms. I basically write about them all at this point. Around that same time is when I started writing. I wrote a lot of poetry before I ever read any poetry or read very much poetry, as a lot of young people do. Right. But that at least got me into poetry. So then I read a lot of poetry and then kept writing poetry after I actually knew what poetry was. Right. And I wrote a lot of uh, short fiction in that time, which is something that's still kind of on the back burner for me, but not something I've been engaged with in a long time. Hmm. Um, And there's nothing from that period I would like bring back. I mean, they were all really, they were like, this is my David Foster Wallace ripoff, and this is my Stephen Milhauser story, and this is my Donald Bartholomew story, and, Mm -hmm. you know, just kind of like emulating, you know, the writers I loved at that time. Right. Mm -hmm. That's like the old school when you were in, at the academy and you had to go paint a Rubens. Right, right, <laughs> and it's a really own. good it's a really good practice, you know. At a certain point with poetry, I did it too. I, when I started in poetry, I was really interested in all this new like internet poetics, and there was a lot of performance involved. I, you know, I, I once cleared a room at the Black Mountain Museum in Asheville, um, <laughs> doing this poetry through my sampler, this like noise poetry where I was like looping and distorting all this stuff, and right. well, those people hated that. Don't they know the I was history really of, that of that place, that though? Yeah, I mean... I was, <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? 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 I mean, come on. I thought it would be, but uh, I guess that's not, you know, not the vibe that persists there now. So, I'm sorry, what was the question? I was just talking about the, the sort of um, how your own personal writing coincided oh, with... Oh, right, right, yeah. And I was saying I did, did the same thing with uh, poetry. I was talking about those short fiction, like right. all these copies. At a certain point, I still don't write, like... Uh, metered poetry. I don't really write forms, although I may toy with forms. But at a certain point, I got really interested in forms and in meter. And I wrote all these like 
I mean, I think I knew even at the time they were like practice poems. Like this is my yeah. villain. This, these are some sonnets and these are some villanelles. These are some pantoums. And mm-hmm. um, and that kind of stuff is important, that kind of copying, because even if you don't do anything with it, you just kind of get those gestures into your body and then they kind of disperse. They go away from whatever you were trying to like do to like copy with them and they become these tools that you can use in your own way. Yeah, I think the the practical aspects of them remain, but maybe the, the simulation of someone else right. falls away. Right. You start with the simulation, you let that go away, and then it kind of, you let it sink down, and then it kind of resurfaces as your own your own thing eventually. Right. Yeah. You hinted at it, but you said uh, that you cover all sorts of things. And so what I, what I often think about, and particularly in your case, is when you're covering something different, like you're going to go see a musician perform versus going to see an exhibition or a performance, do you approach that any differently? I mean, do you have to? Sure, to an extent. I mean, there's a couple, I mean, I, okay, there's lots of kinds of criticism, but for our purposes, let's talk about one dichotomy. Yeah. So there's a kind of review that um, is based on the idea that this person has a special expertise not just in music, but in, say, this particular kind of music that they are reviewing, right. and they're going to be able to deploy a lot of the cultural precedents for that and draw on those. They're going to be able to weave it into um, a, what a sort of a hermetic history of, of that like kind of music. Right. Okay, so there's one kind. And then there's the kind where you are a person who has developed a sort of apparatus for interpreting and talking about art that kind of cuts across genres, where it's not so much about like this dense web of historical citations for this one piece of music. It's about a person who has spent a lot of their time thinking about how art works, which has commonalities across all the media sure. um, in terms of the way people ideate and the way they express that ideation, um, the way it works or it doesn't work, the way the promises it makes to a viewer or a listener and whether it like meets those promises or falls afoul of them. Right. All right. So that's like an apparatus that you develop just from being like a person who carries himself in the world, thinking about these things and experiencing lots of different kinds of performances. As a writer, I tend more like I'm a big generalist I'm a big dabbler like I like I said I write about visual art I write about dance I write about theater I write about music I write about film I write about books Mm -hmm. Um, I write about virtually like anything somebody puts on stage or on a page or on a screen and says this is a world that I'm creating that is worth your time to enter into for these reasons right I tend toward that style of criticism just because my interests are broad and it keeps me interested and that's really what I'm most interested in is how human beings use art, um, how they relate to it, the kinds of emotional experiences they have, uh, the weird kind of like metaphysics where this one thing that's just a thing can mean so much more to somebody else. That said, the most important thing is to know which kind of review you're writing at a given time. Mm -hmm. Like if I'm writing about something where I have like a deep background knowledge of, I still don't necessarily want to bore people by walking back through the last 17 albums and like, there was more synthesizer on this one and less synthesizer (laughs) over here. What do you know? Right. but I'll, if I'm capable of writing that kind of review in a given assignment, I will draw on that. Mm-hmm. But what I value more and what I practice more and have developed more is the ability to like have a sensibility that can move across um, these media and these genres and be consistent. That has a consistent aesthetic and ethical set of values behind it that can really apply to any cultural production that somebody is offering up. Right. Yeah. I've got to think about that for a minute. <laughs> So essentially you're saying that there's a framework 
where you can apply your knowledge base, your expertise, or, or your understanding of writing and, and describing and reviewing and critiquing across the board. Right. But then at the same time, you you probably have to have some awareness, or you do have some awareness, of the sort of history of critique in film versus the history of critique. Of and, and so that's an interesting thing to do. It is. And I would never, like, you know, it... I hope it doesn't sound like I'm saying that it's okay to write about something you're completely ignorant of because you have this apparatus you've used. Like if I'm writing about something where I don't have that kind of groundwork, um, I will do that research to make sure that my judgments aren't based on completely wrong ideas about what the thing is and the lineage that it falls in. That said, I will often do that research after I experience whatever the thing. Um, I'm not someone who likes to do a ton of research before going to a play or a dance or an album or anything because... My view is that anything I need to know about that work should be in that work, like on stage, on the canvas, on screen, wherever. And if it needs this like explainer uh, outside of that frame, then that's a defect of the work. Mm -hmm. The work should tell you, the work should teach you how to experience the work. You shouldn't have to hear a long preamble about it and you shouldn't have to know it's uh, this kind of dense history to get its aesthetic charge. Now you may have an experience with it and you go and you learn about it and it changes your interpretation of that experience. But something is going to like speak to you or not. And that's like going to, that should inhere in like its own power that it's like putting there on the stage. That should be a complete experience to me, not something you have to read a lot about to understand. Right. Now, are you critiquing when you're looking at it? When you're watching it, when you're listening to it? Yes, but that's just how I move through the world at all right. times. And I don't know where once I don't know to what extent I'm a, I do this because that's my nature versus that's my nature right. because I've conditioned myself to do this. But yes, regardless of what I'm writing about, I mean what I've been working on for twenty years is my ability to have abstract aesthetic experiences and to translate them into words that are A, hopefully interesting to read in and of themselves right. and B that communicate something true of that to people, or at least something that's, if not true, then accurate, accurately proportioned, that they can understand what I'm talking about and and use it. And I feel, uh, I mean, there's been a great liberation for writers to do this since the rise of the internet. I mean, critics don't have to be consumer reports anymore. We don't need to, right. it, it scarcely matters to, especially when dealing with music, to write about like whether this is worth your time and money or not, because you can generally just go listen to it yourself and make that decision yourself. So then what we critics get to do then is what the best criticism has always done, um, which is to unpack this stuff and situate it in the culture and um, to articulate like really like passionate, vivid, emotional and aesthetic responses to it. I mean, I don't read criticism myself to know like what I should buy and what I shouldn't, or I don't even necessarily care whether somebody likes something or not. I want to read something that makes the act of listening to music or seeing uh, theater uh, or what have you, seem like a really like vivid, passionate, valid, exciting life experience to have. I want to right. I want to read things where I'm like, these thoughts are really like interesting to read, and I'm really enjoying like thinking through you about this. But then the review almost becomes like its own thing, its own like aesthetic experience that you can enjoy on its own terms. And so that's what I'm trying to give people as well when I write. No, I think that's a that's an interesting thing. Is you know. I love to read a review of a show I've already seen or, or something just mm-hmm. to get that other take, to frame it in a different way. It is, it's inherently a lens through a person, you know, regardless right. of how sort of unbiased or however you approach it, it's your response to something. However you, you've framed it critically, it's still 
me seeing that thing through your understanding. And that's pretty incredible Mm -hmm. um, thing. And I guess I would ask, what's the difference between like reviewing and critiquing? Yeah, that that's that's a really good question. I mean, there, you know, reviewing has never been objective. I think that's a wrong idea that right. gets batted around sometimes that a review can never be objective. What it can be is very distant and clinical. Yeah. Um, but it's ridiculous to say that a review could or should be objective. I think the idea that it even should be is getting swept away as well. The idea that a review is just kind of a report card, like an itemized checklist of like things that were good and things that were not good. Right. And then the reader does the math and, you know, and this piece succeeded or failed on those merits. I think that kind of dream of objectivity is has died or is dying at least. And what we want now and the writers who are most successful and the most interesting actually have a really vivid subjectivity. We want to... We want to experience a work of art through somebody who's like really smart and funny and interesting now, right? right? And so that's all about their emotional experience and their perspective. I think readers are getting a lot more open to that. I think readers are much less interested in like, say, the kind of dry theater review you would read in a daily paper in recent decades. Mm-hmm. And identity is everything now. I mean, in our in our culture, in the arts, like people are really interested in identity and encountering diverse identities mm-hmm. and in meeting these identities like as intimately as possible. So I, yeah, a critique, if there is, if we can dichotomize critique and review, I mean, maybe a review is more of like what I'm talking about, this kind of like super personal, like this was my experience and this is the context that helps you understand why my experience matters and how it might relate to your experience. Right. Whereas a critique is more rooted in um, an elite idea a, a very schematic idea. And actually, I think there's a good place for critique out there too. Critique is really useful for artists. And um, as much as we talk about the importance of reviews for you know readers, they're also really important for artists, if not for their growth. I mean, some artists don't care about reviews. They don't want to learn from them. That's fine. But for monetizing and instrumentalizing their work in the world, that's the kind of documentation that they need to take their workplaces and to give it that veneer of seriousness that will let right. them like take their work onto a larger stage. But for artists who really value good critical feedback, um, I think a, a critique is more valuable than a review for those artists because the right. critique is somebody with expertise saying like, here are some mechanical ways this show could have worked better based on my expertise on how shows work. Right. Artists can really use that. Yeah, I don't know that readers care. Readers care right. about the experience. And frankly, I care about the experience. Um, so I want to have a knowledge of those mechanics, but my focus is not going to be on them because I feel that's fundamentally kind of elite and can often kind of um, miss the point. Like you can right. go, you can go down the line of like, this actor was good. This actor was less good. Uh, the lighting was good in this scene. The lighting was kind of off in this scene. But did people did people respond to it? Was the crowd moved? Were they not moved? Um, right. <laughs> you know. I, yeah. Okay. So there were some problems with uh, you know being audible and you know the second act. Did anybody care? <laughs> like, right. or was it a transcendent experience? Right. I think this is what people care about more, and it's certainly more interesting to write about. Back to what I was saying before about critiquing while you're experiencing something is there's this dual thing. You want to, we as people, we hear music or go see a film for an emotional response. Right. Is to how to simultaneously evaluate, be in that space. Sure. And sort of think about the critical or right. those sort of. I don't know if it's quantifiable, but these aspects that you would write about in an article potentially, that seems real hard. 
I guess it, it does seem hard when you say it like that. Doing the kind of work I do, you develop a kind of a split consciousness. Right. And in fact, I have to multitask so much. I'm able to like, I'm often like a computer with too many windows open and there's like spinny wheels and all of them doing things. Right. But I keep it going that way. If I'm fully in like the cerebral part of myself, I'm going to miss the emotional content of the thing and I'm not going to be of any use to anybody. Mm -hmm. But if I just indulge in the emotional content and my emotional reactions, which emotions are really tricky and they can be stirred by things that you wouldn't want them to be stirred by or right. things that like when you examine them, you're like, um, I actually don't like, I don't like and trust this feeling the show inspired in me. Right. So I'm going to miss that if I'm too focused just on the emotion. Right. So and there's one com- part of me that's fully trying to have the emotional experience, but another part that is simultaneously breaking down what is, cre- what, what kind of devices are being used um, to create that emotional experience and assessing how much it aligns with the emotional experience it seems I'm supposed to have if there is one right. dictated by this show. It's why I love horror movies and don't I can watch them like late at night by myself without fear because as much as I um, get invested in them, there's always a part of my mind that's running separately that's really interested in how they are achieving these effects, like how my emotions right. are being played on, uh, what kind of technical devices they're using to create uh, dread or all these different right. effects. Because as a writer, I'm always trying to like create really subtle effects. So I'm interested in how people in different mediums create subtle effects. So there's a certain um, remove that happens there, even right. when I'm like really like invested and sucked into a movie like Hereditary, which like rocked my world this year but even as i was watching it with like my hands clutched (laughs) over my mouth like i was already ideating about like what it was doing and and that that also uh that's interesting to me that's how my mind works but it also like insulates me from like the actual deep fear of that experience right yeah no that's great yeah and i also think about the fact that you know you know we as people when we experience a work of art we go into it with whatever we're feeling at that moment. You know, you can be swayed in a direction based on whatever the hell happened to you that day. Yeah. And then you may see it the next day and be like, oh, well, I don't know. I right. Feel real it's all a mirror, right? It's all a mirror. So when right. I write a review, it's like, what do I see in that mirror? And I also have to give people, you don't ever want to make the whole review about yourself, but you have to give them enough to give them the frame for the mirror, right? Right. So they understand. And that's like, that's responsible as well. I mean, that's like intellectually honest to be like, this is my real response, but this is also the bare minimum that you need to know about me to contextualize this response and know if you, and decide if you want to trust it or not, basically. Right. Yeah. So you mentioned before that you cover sort of all these different things and you're the, the editor for arts for the indie. Right. I can't remember your exact title. But yeah, my title's, it's my title's like three editor. jobs kind of merged into one title that doesn't quite represent them all, but has <laughs> right. at least one word from all of them. So, right. so <laughs> managing editor for arts and culture is my title. Right. So that's, that's a lot of things. Yeah, it's a lot. <laughs> and we are lucky in the triangle that uh, sort of ever growing, there are all sorts of things to go and see and, and check out. Right. How hard is it to say, you know, this week in the indie, we're gonna we're gonna cover these things? And it's incredibly then the, hard. Then the next phase is, which one am I gonna do if I'm gonna write, and how do how do I balance that? <laughs> right. Yeah, it's incredibly hard, and it's gotten harder in recent years as the arts in this area continue to grow at like a, a really rapid pace. There are certain times of year when it's worse. Fall is pretty much carnage for like months on end <laughs> right. as all the arts presenters, both academic and the ones that track with them, uh, awake from their summer slumbers and right. launch like, you know, week after week of world class <laughs> or really interesting homegrown local shows all at once. I mean, there are nights when I have like four invitations on my calendar and I'm like, well, got to do one of these. Um, right. 
So it's hard enough. It's hard to even just decide like what to go to, mm-hmm. uh, much less to decide what to cover in the paper. I mean, there's no one there's no one razor that makes that decision. There's a lot of like layered factors, and it all comes out in the wash somehow. I mean, one thing you have to consider is that we are covering Raleigh, Durham, and Chapel Hill, uh, and all the small rural areas in between. This is an area we once calculated as the size of Delaware. And it contains these three cities that have their own really distinct personalities and in some ways their distinct art scenes. So we're covering a pretty big geographical area that's also very diverse. It's not as monolithic as a Metroplex and another place that a, a weekly like ours might cover. So one thing I'm always considering is spreading the love, uh, you know, when we're choosing our calendar spotlights and our story, especially in the fall. Like, yeah, I'll be like, there's 20 stories we could do this week, like 20 preview stories. That would be great. I can do you know, three of them. Right. And there's like 20, 30 like events we could do in calendar spotlights. I can squeeze in maybe seven of them. Mm. Right. So we're trying to spread the love between Raleigh and Durham and Chapel Hill, uh, you know, to make sure paper is useful to all those people. We're thinking about diversity of mediums, diversity of identities of the creators. We're thinking about how long it's been since we've covered uh, this thing or that thing. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, there's that layer of like, what do I think are really the can't miss things this week? But I have to temper that with like that my can't miss things wouldn't necessarily be everybody's can't miss things, which is where our freelance writers uh, come in and, you know, provide, you know, kind of broaden that perspective. I mean, one good razor for like whether to cover something or not, when it comes down to those really tough decisions, when there's like these 10 equally worthy things, you can only do three of them. It's like, what's going to make the best story? Mm. Um, because... At the end of the day, like what we're doing is making something for people to read for a little while. I think all the time and have conversations all the time about how we participate in the ecosystem of the local art scene. Mm-hmm. Um, that's really important to me. But you can get really lost in that. And sometimes I have to scale it back and remember like, okay, I'm, I'm making something for people to like read and I need to do the stories that are going to be like most interesting to read. Right. And also take into consideration like, this thing, you know, is going to fly under a lot of people's radar. It's really interesting. So this needs to love more than like, you know, something that Deepak or something like that. Right. Right. So kind of walk me through the process. Like say, say what you could maybe use an example of like your next edition. Hmm. The process. Have you ever been to a goat rodeo? No, but I'd like to. I'd really <laughs> like to. I guess I'm wondering like the top down versus bottom up thing. Like a, like a writer that says, you know, I want to, I want to write about this thing versus you saying, hey, writer, Maybe you should go look at this thing. Sure. It works both ways. You know, I have writers who pitch me things that they are interested in, which I really value because they maybe know about things that I don't know about, or it's something I do know about, but I don't know who is interested in it and would be a good, like, knowledgeable writer for it. So that's great. Um, I have writers whose tastes I know well, who, you know, I will offer assignments when I I think they would be good for something. Mm -hmm. And the things that I take for myself are either the things that, like, I really want to write about and I'm just going to, you know, take them. I don't do that a lot usually because I'm, you know, I'm often too busy. I'm like as much as I'd like to write about this thing. I should hire somebody to do it right. and, you know, answer a few more of these uh, endless emails. <laughs> but sometimes when there's something I really want, you know, like recently Mid-90s came out, the movie Mid-90s, mm-hmm. uh, which is like a, a movie about a, a nostalgic coming of age 90s L.A. skateboarding movie it's like a movie like made from my dreams right so i had to take that one for myself unfortunately it was it was disappointing it was i haven't seen it it was yeah i, ge- I gave it a pretty tepid review somebody which you can is it read Seth in our newspaper. or somebody behind? jonah hill jonah hill yeah right neighborhood right. <laughs> apatow world apatow, apatow world, world. Right. yeah yeah it's jonah hill's uh 
feature de- debut as a writer director, which uh, I mean, you could tell it had a lot of that mm. first time director writer, like banging the point on the head, like idiot proofing of the script. Like nobody can miss any of the points right. uh, kind of deal. The other time I'll take something for myself is when I just, it needs to be written about, but I don't know who could write it or I have a certain take that like an indie take on it that needs to be written. And then I will take that myself, even if I don't necessarily like want to write it. Mm. I will. Should check the paper Wednesday for my Hamilton, my Hamilton long read that's coming up, which I had extreme feelings about. Oh, ooh. Mm. Uh oh. There's a hot tip for you. Oh, there you go. That'll probably be out before this episode is out. Right. But we're still going to read it. I hope, I hope you still read it. Yeah, I hope, I hope, you, I hope you do. <laughs> do you mind if we take a quick break? Not at all. All right, we'll be right back. Are you bored with the same old boring restaurants? Rejoice! Now there's a new, unique dining experience, the Coroner Cafe. That's right. I said Coroner, not Corner. Located on the corner of Mortuary and Morgue in the heart of Death Valley. Choose from a wide variety of exotic meats. Our menu changes daily. Try our Blue Face Special or the popular Donner Party Platter. Then indulge yourself with a tasty, homemade John Donut. So, if you're starving to death or dying of thirst, tell your friends to meet you, that's M-E-A-T, at the Coroner Cafe. Food to die for. Don't You Lie to Me is bravely sponsored by 21C Museum Hotel Durham in the heart of downtown Durham, a multi-venue contemporary art museum offering more than 10,000 square feet of art-filled exhibition and event space, a full-service boutique hotel with luxurious guest rooms. Please check out an installation of my work called Read Nautilus. That'll be up until July of 2019, and they're in the storefront windows on the main street side of 21C. For more information, visit 21cmuseumhotels.com Durham. Are you tired of using those trendy dry erase boards? We thought so. Maybe it's time to reacquaint yourself with chalk. It's not just for outlining dead bodies anymore. You can write words or even sentences. You can draw pie charts or pie equations, even pie recipes. Oh, and you could take it a step further too. You can draw pictures of your freshly baked pies. Chalk, that's right, chalk. Ever try to draw on a sidewalk with a dry erase marker? It doesn't work. Hey, dry erase markers, it's chalk calling. Eat our dust. And we're back. We talked about it a little bit, but the arts in general is as strong or as there's many options of things to see and do as we've ever had. What are your thoughts now about where the arts are and maybe what's leading the charge or what interests you the most? Those kinds of things. You know, it's really hard to summarize because, you know, theater in Raleigh is not theater in Durham. Mm. Um, Not to say there's not crossover. There are institutions in Raleigh that do work in Durham and institutions in Durham that do work all over the triangle, uh, mainly because they have to because we don't have any theater (laughs) venues anymore because Common Ground and Man Bites shut down. Mm -hmm. So it's a little bit hard to get a read on the whole triangle, but there are certain commonalities. I mean, one thing I can say as somebody who's been editing uh, a newspaper and uh, running an arts calendar for 
what, going on five years now, uh, is that the arts have been growing and are definitely still growing, uh, just in terms of the number of events that are happening every week, especially in peak season, which is, uh, you know, fall. Well, actually, peak season now is basically any time except like the real depths of winter and summer. Mm -hmm. um, everything else pretty much year round, there's more to do than a person could possibly do. And I mean, that's great. That's that's where we want to be. But there are a lot more options now than there were even five years ago, certainly more than there were 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. um, that should breed an atmosphere of more competition. But one thing I love about triangle artists is how uncompetitive they are uh, as a rule, uh, how much they collaborate and share space, mm -hmm. uh, share resources, share ideas, show up to support each other. I mean, it's possible that happens to an extent that there's a little bit of a bubble, like there's maybe there's a lot more arts than there used to be. There's maybe a little more arts than there should be uh, from a strict economic perspective in terms of like the audience to support those arts. I mean, I think particularly in in dance, um, you know, the, the Durham dance scene, one of the micro kind of scenes in the triangle that um, I spend a lot of time in, there's going to come a point when Durham can't crowdfund any more $10,000 dance shows. Right. You know, um, the more of those there are, the fewer people there are to support them. And the more that community is kind of like paying for itself as a community. That's great, but it's it's not sustainable. Right. But so triangle artists are not competitive, even though there are all these options. And I, th I think that's just kind of a quality of like why I love living here. Mm -hmm. It's also people trying to make it in a in an art scene where they're aren't enough resources probably for all the people who want to be in it. But one commonality I see um, across the cities is kind of a people doing it for themselves kind of thing. Um, I think we're seeing this across the country. We're seeing it here as uh, so much development and gentrification is happening and pushing out kind of old established art spaces. And people are having to find new ways to do things and actually turning that into kind of an aesthetic I mean, here in Durham in particular, <laughs> I say here in Durham, we're out in what well, we're in Chapel Hill right now. Mm -hmm. My heart is always in Durham, I guess. <laughs> here in Durham in particular, um, I mean, the city is al almost like an author, a uh, co-author of so much of the work we see because Durham artists in particular are so much about uh, site-specific work and kind of post-industrial or public or kind of transitory commercial spaces. So people in Durham are looking for alternative spaces. They're post-Prosinium, like nobody's really that interested in like the Prosinium stage anymore. People are interested in these kind of transitory urban spaces. Part of that is uh, financial exigency. Part of it is that there's really not that many places, uh, traditional places to perform, unless you're at the level of performing at, you know, Reynolds Theater right. or something <laughs> like that. But that's really like, that's developed into a really interesting aesthetic where people are making work that is for the city, in the city, and about the city. Right. 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 You know, the, the content of the work is so much about the city and the, ch the changes that it has to be in an environment that reflects that. You can't, right. you can't just put that anywhere and it be the same thing at all. Right. If you think about a place like um, The Fruit, mm -hmm. I just think about the extent to which so many shows you've seen at The Fruit could only have happened at The Fruit. Right. And therefore, how much importance falls on a venue like that um, when it's kind of providing the space for people to do what they do. Think about something like Justin Tourneau's show, which Warren was involved in. That could only have happened at The Fruit. If it had happened somewhere else, it would have been in a completely different shape. 
than what we saw it as, right? Right, absolutely. Right. I mean, Tim Walter, the owner of The Fruit, will tell you the story about how he was looking for like a photography studio mm-hmm. when he moved back to Durham. And his realtor wanted to show him this former fruit warehouse. So that was the former, the Durham Fruit and Produce Company on right. Dillard Street. Tim has told me as soon as he saw this space, like he knew that this was the space he was looking for. Uh, but it was obviously much bigger than a photography studio, and he wanted to do other things. So we began consulting with local artists, particularly people in like the dance and theater community. And instead of hearing the normal thing from him, which is like, we want this cut up into fire-safe cubes, uh, we want a stage in, in this part, and we want seating in this part, basically what he heard was like, leave it like this. Right. Cavernous, open sight lines, eclectic post-industrial spaces, things that don't already have like somebody else's design and aesthetic sensibility like strongly imprinted on them, mm. where then the artists can transform them, transform it for themselves. And they can mount all kinds of work that bleeds across boundaries here. And this is another thing in triangle arts that I think reflects the arts nationwide is that, you know, I seldom go see a dance show that doesn't have some theater in it anymore. I seldom go see a theater show that doesn't have some visual art. I seldom go see a reading that doesn't have an element of some other kind of performance. All these old boundaries are breaking down. Um, Interdisciplinary is becoming kind of like the norm. Mm -hmm. People may have a home base, but nobody really wants to be outside of the hardcore classicists, like trapped in their home base. So the fruit kind of perfectly expresses this like blank post-industrial canvas for these people, Mm -hmm. uh, for what the artists in Durham are actually interested in and actually doing. And it also, it feels like the city itself, right? It's not like a hole in the city. It's not like this like magical fantasy, like square. I mean, this is what we've been doing since like the first time humans like drew a square in the world and said, whatever happens in the square is imaginary and anything can happen. And anything that happens outside of the square is just the world. Mm -hmm. That has been like really breaking down where the world penetrates that square and the square wants to go out into the world via artist talks and, you know, all, all kinds of like community initiatives. And the fruit is like a great example of a kind of a modern instantiation of that square where it's like, yes, it's a box, but it's a box that doesn't have like a really strong predefined function. Like it's a box you can do kind of anything with and it's going to feel like the city itself, which is so full of this like historic brick and wood post-industrial space. You know, it's like a contiguous space with the city. I can't imagine it in Raleigh kind of functioning the same way. Right. Um, yeah, there's something very Durham about it. I mean, think about Justin Tourneau's work in there, like, like we talked about. Think about Monet Noel Marshall's work in there. And these are both works that have, what, they have some kind of like a center in a genre, you know, mm-hmm. uh, Monet's in theater and Justin's in dance. Um, but really, I mean, these were visual art. These were theater. These were dance. These were installation art. These were conceptual art. These were immersive art. They involved film projections, or at least Justin's did. Right. You know, so this is a place where, like, the fruit is really a site where all those borders that are kind of breaking down can really, they can, whatever is, like, breaking out of them can really converge in the fruit really naturally. It's such a adaptable space. So if you write about that, what's the little label at the edge of the page going to say? Dance or theater, right? Or should, right. Or do, should there be more <laughs> open-endedness in uh, acknowledgement of what I'm talking about about these boundaries breaking down? I've already started to um, abstract those categories in recent years. Mm. We no longer have a sig that says dance and a sig that says theater. What we have now is art, stage, page, right. and screen. Okay, so art is right. like all the visual art. Anything that falls in the visual art realm goes under art. 
stage can take in anything. And I, it really became a necessity a couple years ago to do that because there were so many shows. I was like, is this a dance show with some theater or is this a, a play with some dance or like a play with some art? It really became a problem to the mm -hmm. point where like we needed to merge those into stage and also include comedy and storytelling, anything else that can happen on a stage that isn't music. Mm. Page is for, you know, readings and things like that. And screen is something that's really opening up. I mean, I got rid of film and turned it to screen so we could deal with TV, so we could deal with streaming media, so we could deal with online and viral media, mm. so we could deal with video games. So, uh, yeah, it makes the most sense now to frame things in terms of almost their like format or medium like this is in a gallery this is on a stage this is on a page this is on a screen right uh, because so many of those traditional divisions have broken down and that's really exciting to me to see i mean i i fully you know it's not just a response to something but we're also encouraging our readers to say like don't just look at the theater section don't just look at the dance section uh look at everything that's going on on stage and you're going to discover things that are totally contiguous to what you're into that you wouldn't have discovered if we were breaking them down into like finer categories. Right. Yeah. So what are we missing? As a oh, so much. I mean, I think off the top of my head, we're missing head, venues. I, I mean, venues. The, the fruit is kind of essential right now to the Durham art scene. Honestly, like whatever we can do to keep Tim Walter afloat, we need to do it. Mm -hmm. Because if we lose that place after losing common ground and after losing man bites, what well, we have the living arts collective, which is a great venue Sprung Floor, I believe, doesn't make it suitable for a lot of theater. Uh, they have a lot of other community events going on. We would be really hard up for independent theater and dance performance outside of like abandoned storefronts and places like that. Right. Or pop-ups in the 21C vault without the fruit. We're getting leaner and leaner as far as, and maybe, and this is across the board nationally and is our legitimate art galleries. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's just really, it's a hard, it's a hard go as a, as an owner, obviously, but also as an artist to find. And I think in the visual arts, obviously, also you're seeing more things like the fruit as well, but in different sort of venues, different ways to show your work. Right. And it seems like art galleries almost have to be like a double as event spaces now to right. to stay alive. I mean, we, in, in Durham, we still have Pleiades downtown. They have their model that keeps them solvent downtown, at least for now. Mm -hmm. We have 21C, but, you know, the Carrick uh, moved out to Golden Belt, and then Spectre left Golden Belt, um, you know, through this lens is still sticking it out downtown, but they're like a frame shop as much as a gallery. Mm -hmm. It seems like what the Carrick does really well with is uh, events. They're turning over their exhibitions quickly, tapping into a lot of different communities and a lot of community support and having events to like keep people in the space. Right. But yeah, sure. Like downtown with what downtown rents are right now. Mm. How do you maintain a space that's just to look at art in a small room, not like a big museum exhibition? Right. In a small room, you show with like 12 pieces in it or something. <laughs> How do you afford to do that downtown? You can't. You don't. You don't, right? right. Not, a, not without having some kind of robust like event schedule to offset that. Mm. And so I think that's, I think that's good and bad, you know? Like a, a lot of my interface with art will be on like reception nights, gallery, in terms of like small like gallery shows. Mm -hmm. When the place is packed and you're like hobnobbing and eating cheese and you're maybe not even like seeing the art that much, you know? Right. So like how do you bring people into these spaces? And I think using like performances to activate the space is actually like a great way to do it, to activate mm -hmm. the space, to activate the art. But yeah, otherwise, we're not going to have any visual art downtown soon if people don't try these novel solutions because you can't afford to just like... You can't afford to rent a walk up downtown and hang up 12 pictures in it. You can't do it. No, it's just impossible. Right. 
So when- so we need space and we need uh, resources. We need, you know, obviously there's like, you know, federal and state resources are great, but we need, you know, we need, I think, I feel we need something to break up the crowdfunding tradition that has emerged in recent years, which is working for a little while, but it's not going to work indefinitely. Yeah, I think you're right. I think, you know, th- there's only so much that can be supported particularly in that fashion. It's yeah. just like the same people are the same people that in how much can a person do. Right. And so people are getting to put on their shows, but they're not getting to like, they're not really making any money. The community funds one show and everybody goes to see it. And that person maybe breaks even if they're lucky. And then everybody <laughs> chips in to fund the next person's show. So but where does nice that cycle? To get, like, like legitimate support. Yeah. <laughs> to make a thing and get, you know, what is your worth out of it? It would be, but so much of the like the most interesting local art is based on more of an experience economy than an artifact economy. Right, that's true. Um, so how do you monetize that? And I think there's a lot of like things to like figure out about that. Right. Mm-hmm. If I'm new to the area, like what's my portal? Like what should I go see that would sort of? Uh, how do I get a sense? Yeah, I mean, of what in Durham for performing arts, definitely the fruit. I mean, the fruit has a lot of potential as a visual art space as well, which we've seen somewhat explored already. I mean, you know, Tim Walter himself is a photographer. He had a great show at Through This Lens recently of his right. portraits of all like people in the local arts community kind of like dusted and this like white, like ashy stuff. Right. They're really, really striking yeah, uh, I portraits. Think so too. During the Click Festival there recently that he had an installation by Mona Kuhn, mm-hmm. a photographer who I'm afraid I can't remember where she's from right now. She's not from here Brazil. from Brazil originally. So Mona had a had a show there at the Fruit, which was uh, unlike anything she'd ever done before. I mean, she's mm-hmm. a like a art photographer, uh, usually displays like you know flat photographic images, but the Fruit itself, like the architecture of the place, and mm-hmm. you know Tim's openness, gave her the opportunity to do her first like photo installation, which was part of the Click Festival in October. Right. So there was like the ante room that was all like covered in like crinkly foil Mm -hmm. and then there was the big warehouse space to the right where she had her big kind of like hanging like portraits i can't remember if they were projected or printed i feel like there were some projections in there they were were on vinyl and projections with this whole kind of space behind them so okay so this is a really interesting example of how the fruit how mediums blend in durham and how the fruit is kind of ideal for this right right so because it's this unusual space and tim keeps kind of the financial hurdles to get into it low it's a place where like emerging artists can have a safe space to experiment mm-hmm. and to develop things and try new things. Uh, it's also a place where kind of mid-career artists like Mona can try something that they haven't done before on a scale that's kind of like accessible. So that's what she did. She did this like photo installation that was really cool. And within that installation, then one night I went to see a poetry reading that was totally unconnected, but happened like inside the installation because it was booked like during the installation, right? Mm-hmm. So... Okay, so Tim provides the space. Mona does this new thing, like transforms her photos into this thing that's like very much about the space that it's in and not mm. just hanging the photo on the wall. Right. And then somebody books a reading that comes into the midst of this installation and uh, brings in this poetry and performance and another art component that interacts with it. Okay, so this was a reading by a poet named Jenna Rose Nethercott, who's from Vermont. Uh, she's pretty great. She got chosen by Louise Gluck for like a, a big prize recently for her book, The Lumberjack's Dove. Uh, she's on like some crazy eight month tour of the country, which is like a crazy thing for a poet to do. Mm-hmm. She's doing that. So she gave a reading in the Mona Kuhn installation where she used this thing called a cranky. Have you ever heard of a cranky? No. Okay. I hadn't heard of it either until I saw her do this. So a cranky is like 
So it's like a wooden box, okay? It's like backlit. And it has like a long scroll across the front and these big cranks on it. I think there was like 80 feet of scroll in it or something. So as she read her from her book, which was very like kind of a contemporary fairy tale, like very much of fairy tale feel, she would crank this cranky and there were these beautiful kind of like silhouette you know, linerty like illustrations on this scroll that she cranked through mm. as she read to like illustrate what she was reading. The space begat this photographer to do this multimedia installation that then became this atmosphere for this reading that was unconnected to it, but was also like activated by it and interacted with it in really interesting ways, right? right? That's cool. I have no idea where that thought began I, I and what I, question I don't it projected either, from. I liked it a whole lot. <laughs> right. It made me really happy. <laughs> so one thing I think about, you know, we've talked a lot about your work for the indie, but a little bit maybe about more national writing. Mm -hmm. Talk a little bit about how you have to frame artwork nationally versus locally. Is there a difference? Oh, Do you wow. have to like, is there an expectation of a local person reading the indie having some background knowledge of a location or an artist versus nationally someone that no one may know about or the location or how does that work? Do you think differently or is it the same thing? Yeah, no, that's a great question. I haven't really thought about it, but um, no, it's it's totally different. It's totally different. So when you're doing writing, you always have to have some kind of audience in your mind, whether it's like a person who's like a real person or like some idealized person who represents the kind of person you think you're talking to, mm -hmm. or it's like a national audience or it's like a local audience. You can't just write to yourself, you know, you have to have some kind of like target, even if it's totally like made up and abstract. Mm -hmm. When I write for the indie or when I'm writing locally in any fashion, I'm writing for like people I know in the place where I live mm -hmm. and people who like know me, even if they don't know me personally, they know me, they know me because I'm from here. You know, maybe they've read me, maybe they haven't read me, but I'm from here. I, like I am of this place, like whatever right. this place is. Whatever I am, like they are connected, I am of it, right? Right. So yeah, when I'm writing about stuff here, I'm very, I'm presuming like a certain like threshold of local knowledge, and I'm talking like I would talk to like people who live here and know what it feels like to live here, who knows what it feels like to live in the South and to be like a Southern person in a progressive place, you know, like all these things. Yeah. Whereas when I'm writing nationally, it's much more like, yeah, it can be more of like a artifact or like a, it can be more hermetic, like I'm constructing this thing that can stand up like outside of me uh, placeless timeless mm. but here I'm very much thinking about like living here and like knowing people here and being a part of this community because I mean that's why I continue to write about here when I could write about there for right. more money <laughs> right. um, so but that that's part of what makes it valuable to me is that here I get to like give back to the place that has like nurtured me and sustained me and given so much to me and I get to write to people I know to like my community and the place mm -hmm. where I live and people who understand me in a way because they live here too right and they probably see me out at the bars and like they you know or they've known me like from way back in the day right yeah one thing that uh, I want to talk a little bit about again because it interests me and maybe I'm, uh, I've never really thought about it in, in this terms and I don't know if I can fully verbalize what I'm thinking, but mm -hmm. when you talked about writing about exhibitions and shows and performances as a standalone thing, I think I always think of them as sort of an entry point to something, mm -hmm. but I love you framing it as it's its own thing. Like, you know, I think when I read like about an exhibition, your thought is always, I'm going to go see that or, or I'm not going to go see that. But 
there is this real value in the thing itself, the article itself, the mm-hmm. interpretation. And I don't, I think that gets forgotten a well, lot of times. Well, there ought to be. There often right. isn't value in the article itself, which is why people maybe don't always look for it. Right. But, but like, if it was, yeah, if it I was think, just about whether you should go or not, it would be one sentence, right? Go see this or don't go see this. Right. Right. I think I often limit my thinking about what, what it is. And um, I just think, I just find that really interesting, mm-hmm. this sort of standalone thing, because there are particularly... And some of the the negative criticisms I've read over the years, I think sometimes there are shows that I would have not even I don't even know that I would remember, but I remember the article about right, them. Right. Can you speak a little bit about the decision to either write or print an, a sort of fairly negative or very negative article on whatever it is? We talk about the limit in the number of venues and and that sort of thing in the triangle, but we also talk about the the wealth of things you can go see. Right. You talked about how you can you have to limit what you can talk about to X number of things per edition, and so you know there's this balancing act of you know coverage of of what you can versus giving space to potentially a negative critique. Can you talk about that decision to make that? Right. Uh, right. Choice? So, right. So there's the question of like, do we want to spend our space writing about things people should go see and that are worth their while? Or right. do we want to spend our space telling people about what they should not go see and what is not worth their while? And there's a couple factors at play there. I think, I mean, one question you ask is whether you're punching up or punching down when you think about like presenting a negative critique about something. Right. You know, we were talking over the break about some of my feelings about Hamilton. Mm-hmm. Um, let's say, without, you know, blowing up my spot about what I'm going to publish <laughs> in the paper, let's say I went in hard on Hamilton. Let's say I went in guns blazing on Hamilton, okay? Yeah. Hamilton will be fine. Like, <laughs> right. <laughs> right? Um, right. <laughs> but if it's like a local artist who's just getting started, who does something like real bad or not up to snuff, maybe it's best just to pass over that in silence. Certainly, if it's something that people are not going to encounter, are not likely to encounter anyway, mm-hmm. then there's no reason to crank up a, a like a, a pan of it, right? If it's something that like people aren't likely to see. Right. Now, if it's something they're going to, like a lot of people are maybe going to pay a lot of money for, unless we tell them like if it's good or not, then that's a different story. So yeah, one question is, are you punching up or are you like punching down at somebody who's not going to be like served and readers aren't going to be served by hearing that this thing is, you know, not good or has this problem. Mm -hmm. So that's one question. Um, The other question is, is something just like not to my taste or not up to snuff aesthetically in some way? Or is something actually kind of like doing evil in the world? You know, is something putting out something like toxic? Is something like really fucked up that like people need to know is on stage at Deepak, like when Deepak had Jordan Peterson there uh, mm-hmm. earlier this year, which was, granted was not something they booked from what I understand. Like he like, you know, kind of like bought the space or rented the space. It's a different kind of arrangement. Right. Nevertheless, there are times when it's important to say like, this is happening and you need to know this is happening because it's objectionable for these reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a time when a negative critique is worth publishing. And there are also times when something is kind of like on the bubble. This is almost really good. And like this artist could just maybe need to hear like these few things mm-hmm. and they can like get this over the hump to being really good. Right. And then you, you also have like good things to say to counterbalance that. So you're not just like puncturing somebody's balloon for like no reason. Right. right. So that's another really good time to publish something more negative is when it seems like the artist might actually be able to like use it somehow. So if readers can learn something important or artists can use it, then I think that's a good time for like a negative critique. So I guess one thing is sort of 
I don't know if calling out is the right word, but making venues and institutions aware of their decision making to put out this thing. That to me is always interesting because sure. I think sometimes institutions and venues under consider their role in making this thing happen. Yes. Institutional accountability is also a really important thing in that matrix of deciding whether something needs like a bad review or not. Let's make up a venue, you know, the Nut House. It's a comedy venue. It's called <laughs> the Nut House. Most of the time they do totally innocuous programming. Um, but one night they decide to book like some like what was uh, a comedian with like a white supremacist website or something, right? Maybe somebody nobody has ever heard of. Mm-hmm. Maybe something a lot of our readers weren't going to go to anyway. But they need to know that that's the kind of choices that venue or presenter is making if they want to think about supporting their other stuff, right? Right. Right. So that's a good time when we need to punch up because a venue generally is something that has like um, some power. I mean, we know that those institutions read the indie. Uh-huh. It's not just um, educating the public. I think it also can be making those institutions aware that, hey, we're paying attention and yeah. maybe you're not. And the venues are part of the public. Right. They live here. Right. Right? <laughs> it's true. I mean, I'm always I'm always thinking about the reader. The, like, the reader is my boss. The reader is, like, who I, like, go to sleep thinking about at night and wake up thinking about in the morning. They're who I think about when I write. They're who I think about when I make decisions. Now, I'm always working on expanding and refining my conception of who the reader is, right? Because it's not one person. It's this whole mass of people. But the reader is ultimately like who I work for and who I'm trying to serve. But the reader is served by us keeping, you know, venues and presenters on track. And also venues and presenters are readers and citizens and people who live here, you know? (laughs) So talk about your own work, your personal work. uh, Journalism or uh, art? Like poetry uh-huh. uh, and performance, where that is and, and what you're working on right now. Sure. Poetry. <laughs> what am I doing with poetry? I mean, I have this, <laughs> I have this book I've been writing for 10 years. I mean, a lot of, a good bit of it has appeared in like journals and parts of it have appeared in chat books. Um, it's this book called Wolf Intervals and it's really this place I go to write and it's been like slowly like writing over itself for the past decade, it's kind of a super abstract Bildungsroman. There are still a few poems left in it from like the very early days of it, but a lot of them have been um, overwritten now. As somebody who like monetizes his writing, I have to work really like fast in my professional writing. And I, one thing that poetry does for me, it's a space where I can be really slow, mm-hmm. um, which is why I've been like doing this same book for so long and mm-hmm. letting it kind of like go over itself. So, I'm, I, I mean, you know, I keep thinking this book is done, but then I write new poems. and I'm like, I, I just put them on the end of it. Mm-hmm. And it'll probably just keep going like that until somebody publishes it. So somebody better go ahead and publish it soon before <laughs> it gets to be like 150 pages or something. Mm-hmm. I'm hosting a series of readings called House Party. Mm-hmm. Um, that's house like H-O-W-S-E because my last name is H-O-W-E and I'm kind of vain. So um, I decided to brand it after myself. This is a series I've been doing like at my house in Durham, but sometimes other places. I actually did the last one at Arcana, which is my favorite Durham night spot. If you're interested in house readings, um, I understand that my website or social media will be provided through this interview, so you can find it through that. Um, mm-hmm. I don't quite have it locked in yet, so I can't, I can't say exactly yet, but I think it's going to be uh, a really good one. I started doing that because... 
what? I've hosted various reading series over the year that kind of come and go. I used to do one called Wax Roth, which is the name of my like blog still now. I started this one because there wasn't a good like house series around, like salon style, like reading in somebody's house rather than at like a bookstore mm. or a bar or a coffee shop. And it's just such a different vibe when you get people into like somebody's home. It's so much like looser and, you know, it's just fun to have a party. Right. Um, so I kind of did that to fill a fill a gap for um, for house readings in the area. And it's been a lot of fun. My other big project now, I guess, is um, I don't quite know what to call it. I mean, sound poetry is maybe something to call it. It kind of sometimes I'm not sure how much it's poetry and how much it's music. It seems to kind of like flow freely back and forth between them. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's a project with another writer named Michelle Dove. We made a tape last year called Lure, L-U-R-E. I've discovered that's a hard word to say and have it be intelligible what word you're saying. Um, and we did a performance of it at the Nightlight 15th anniversary party in Chapel Hill. Um, it's a great like uh, experimental music club that I've been hanging out at for a really long time. So that was fun. So this project involves um, a mix of writing and music or sound art, if you'd rather. We have a couple things coming up. The first project, we spent like six months working on the tape. And then we spent like a month and a half making a live thing from it to do the Nightlight show. But because the tape was constructed so much in virtual space, Michelle and I did a lot of like recording pieces of writing separately, recording bits of music or sound separately, and then kind of editing them together. The live performance had to be, I mean, we could use some of the same samples, but we basically had to build like a whole new apparatus. This time we're starting with the live part and actually haven't even thought about like recording the new wave of stuff we're doing. Mm. So I think it's going to be a lot better the live show of this because it's being built to be live mm-hmm. she's playing like um she has like a sampler and like a loop station i'm playing a lot of guitar um it's kind of a structured improvisation thing where you know she's playing her devices and i'm playing my guitar improvising but my guitar is also going through her devices so she can apply effects and loop and do things to what i'm playing that i then have to respond to and then we're both reading we both have things we're writing that we're like, that we're reading in this. And those are also going through effects and loops. So it becomes kind of this circulating like mass of like musical and verbal information. The part I'm reading involves like, I made this poem in like two columns. And then what I did is I went through and I like, I recombined it. There's two columns straight up and down, but then I kept writing it over going horizontally. Uh So the columns are like reshuffling. And so I'm working backwards through it until like so i'm reading these same lines in a different order throughout the thing until they finally come together at the end and like the poem that was there like at the base of it all along so that's what we're working on right now we we are definitely doing a sunday sites performance with it in march i don't have the exact date on the top of my head uh, you can check web stuff for that as well. If you're not familiar with Sunday Sights, this is a really cool project that a local dancer and choreographer and photographer named Stephanie Leathers does and has been doing for a few years that involves uh, site-specific performances, often durational, meaning like we're going to do thing X for like two hours or four hours or six hours. Mm-hmm. Ours is only two hours because I have to play a lot of guitar. It'd be pretty demanding to do for six hours or something. Mm-hmm. It's very geared toward a certain site uh in Durham in the past, although now it's expanding to encompass the whole triangle. 
and it's responding to the site and it's responding to change and development in Durham. It's been a really cool series that we've seen everywhere from like the skate park in Durham to like Arcana to the Fishmonger storefront before it be opened as St. James. Mm-hmm. So we're definitely doing one of those in March. I don't know exactly where yet, but that's a really cool project as far as what I was talking about earlier is like with boundaries breaking down um, and with Durham artists being really interested in site. Because this year, Stephanie is not only expanding it throughout the triangle, not only to Durham and bringing on new curators for Chapel Hill and Raleigh, she's also opening it even more to artists outside of dance. Uh, Dance has been its traditional like foundation. Michelle and I may end up bringing a dancer into this actually. We're still like working with various multimedia and presentational aspects. But this year, it's going to include filmmakers and visual artists and like all kinds of people reacting to sites in Chapel Hill, in Durham, and uh, in Raleigh. Very so, cool. yeah, it's those are the main things. It's been neat to see that project take off mm-hmm. and become what it's become. Mm-hmm. Really neat. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for being with us. Oh, thanks so much for having me. It was great. Real Kitty Kitty Litter is the first and only all-in-one pet kit. Are you tired of having to make two trips to rescue a new cat? We thought so. First, you have to drive all the way to the shelter and then off to the pet store. To hell with that. Real Kitty Kitty Litter comes with a free kitten in every box. You're welcome. Hurry now while supplies last. Seriously, hurry. Real Kitty Kitty Litter. Meow. If you don't hate what you hear, please tell your friends, family, and random strangers on the street to listen as well. Also, please consider helping us out by subscribing on iTunes, writing a brief comment, and by giving us a rating, preferably a good one. All of these things go a long way towards helping us climb the charts, which also helps us gain non-fake sponsors. You guys are amazing. Don't You Lie to Me is physically sponsored by VAE Raleigh, a 501c nonprofit creativity incubator. You can find out more about them at vaeraleigh.com. We'd also like to thank Matt McMichaels for the use of his studio, Trusty Woods. Our theme song was written by our own Warren Hicks, and our logo design was created by Artsy Martha. Don't forget to check out our website at don'tyoulietome.com. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe and tell your friends and family to listen as well.